0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Hebrews chapter 10. What are the results of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection? Well, the very first thing that his crucifixion and his resurrection does, it takes care of our biggest problem. You might say, well, my biggest problem is, you know, I've got a stopped up sink at home. That's not your biggest problem. The biggest problem that we have in this life is sin. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. That's why he rose again from the dead, is to solve the problem of sin before Christ died on the cross, sin was a problem without a solution. Sin was a problem without a solution. Even the Old Testament sacrifices could not solve the problem of sin. What is one of the biggest problems of sin? Well, guilt this morning is an issue. And Christ's crucifixion and resurrection removes the guilt of sin. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then they would for then would they have not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, Mm -hmm. for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The Old Testament sacrifices could not make anyone perfect. What do I mean by perfect? That word means to be complete to carry through completely, to bring to the end goal. The Old Testament sacrifices couldn't bring us to the end goal. What's the end goal? The end goal was to completely take away sin. And even the Levitical sacrifices couldn't do that. They could not remove the consciousness of sin. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells us, that conscience, our conscience, was put in the our heart by God Himself. And our conscience serves two functions. The very first function that it does is it condemns the acts of sin. In other words, in our conscience we get this sense of what's right and wrong. We don't necessarily have to be taught that. We kind of have this inner sense. That's our conscience. That's what God has placed in all mankind a sense of right or wrong. So that's the first function of con- conscience. The second function is that it judges the person of the sinner. In other words with respect to our sense of guilt and innocence. And Paul even talk about that in Romans. You know, some people haven't even heard the gospel, but they have their conscience to testify in their own hearts whether they are guilty or not of sin. So the Old Testament sacrifices, they did address that first aspect of conscience. It definitely condemned acts of sin, but it never did anything about the second part. It never addressed the guilt of the sinner. Let me give you a little example, a little analogy. There's a young man in our church who bought a very nice, fancy car. It's sitting out in the parking lot this morning, by the way. And uh, Les is such a wonderful guy. You know, last week, I was looking at his car. And uh, man, I'm just drooling, right? And, and, uh, um, and he said, you know, you can take it for a drive if you want. And I said, no way. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, I just get really really leery about some, taking someone's brand new vehicle. My, my uh, father-in-law, my, my Teresa's stepdad up in Duluth years ago, he bought a brand new pickup truck. and. Uh, we were working on my car, and we needed to get some parts from the auto parts store. And he said, here. And he hand me the keys to his truck. Let's go get some parts. And I said, You just bought this truck. He goes, I don't care. I got a bad back. You drive. I said, I don't want to drive. He goes, You drive. And he's the kind of guy, he, he's kind of like the godfather. You just don't, you don't give him no for an answer. Anyway, so I'm like, Okay, fine. I'm like, Fine. So we start driving. Well, he wanted to take me on this back road. This is in the winter. He wanted me to take me on this back road through these woods, a shortcut, not to grandma's house, but to the auto parts store. <laughs> and uh, so we're driving up there, and it's just really wooded. And I'm going the speed limit. Whatever, I mean, there was no speed limit, but I wasn't speeding or anything. Anyways, out of a side street in this wooded area, some guy in a minivan just darts out in front of me and I hit the brakes. Well, it was an unpaved road. There was no, it was it was I was on ice basically, or at least packed snow, and I just I couldn't stop. I just slid right into his car. And man, brand. I mean he didn't, I don't think he had the truck for maybe a week. Smashed. I felt so terrible. I'm like, I couldn't stop. And of course, he didn't really say much, so I felt that much worse. (laughs) Well, so that's why I don't really like to drive people's new vehicles, especially fancy ones like Les's car. So let's say, for example, though, that Les did say, hey, do you want to drive my car? And I said, sure. And I get into this car, and I start backing out of the church parking lot. And there, his brother Lathan's got this really fancy truck. And I just, you know, stupid me. I just kind of back out funny, and I end up Hitting the back side of his car with the front side of of the fender of of Les's car And I put a ding and a big scratch at it man. I would feel Terrible, I'm sure any one of you would I know Les would feel terrible probably (laughs) But again Les is such a nice guy. I say Les man. I am sorry I really blew it and you know he I'm assuming he would say that's okay. I forgive you It's just an accident, you know Okay I would be, have been forgiven, but let's say that he decides he's not going to take the, you know, he doesn't want his insurance rates to go up. They're probably already pretty high on that. He doesn't want to get insurance rates going up, so he'll go, you know what? I'm just going to drive it this way. And so every time he comes to church and he's got his car in the parking lot, and I go out there to look, you know, I'm checking around, and there it is. I see that dent and that scratch, and I go, man. And it just keeps on reminding me I'm a lousy driver, I have that, that that's that guilt he's forgiven me but I, every time I look there it is it just reminds me of it well because the Levitical sacrifices were repeated year in year out it was a reminder to the children of Israel that they were sinners and that the sin problem hadn't been fully solved they were forgiven but they still felt guilty now on the flip side of that, there might be someone who says, you know what, I don't feel guilty at all. Man, what you're talking about, man, with guilt? I don't feel guilty. Well, the Bible talks about that. The Bible says that people can have a seared conscience. A seared conscience happens when you violate over and over and over your sense of right and wrong. You keep doing, you know, your, your conscience says, you know, I really shouldn't be doing that, but you do it anyways eventually your your conscience gets calloused and you become insensitive to your conscience so when someone tells me i don't have a guilty conscience i just look and go oh man it must be seared then because we all have a conscience we all know what's right and wrong well paul wrote in romans four twenty five that jesus christ was delivered up and that word delivered up you could you could just put the word crucified in there he was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification see the fact that Christ rose from the dead meant that the father accepted the sacrifice of Christ the Son it was accepted because if Christ's sacrifice for sin had not been accepted you if you were gonna go take a trip to the Holy Land you could one of the one of the things to see would be the tomb of Jesus i want gonna go see the tomb of Jesus, you know, the little candles and little incense things and stuff where people would, would make their trek to the tomb of Jesus. You know, you go to Jerusalem today, they have what's known as the garden tomb. They have no idea if that's really the tomb of Jesus because they can't find the tomb of Jesus because he's not there. <laughs> it's an empty tomb. This must have been a his because it's an empty one. Uh, they have reasons why they, they say that's the tomb of Jesus, they believe, the empty tomb, I should say. But anyways, Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sin was accepted. And because he rose from the dead, that means that we have been justified. Not only forgiven, but justified. If you want to put that in just really fancy terms or really common terms, justified means just as if I never did it. That's exactly the guilt is gone. It's just as if I never sinned. It'd be like if I went on the parking lot and, and it's like, man, I, I never hit that. That, that wasn't me. No, I could probably do that, try to deny things. But you know. <laughs> anyways, Hebrews 9.25, we looked at it last week, said that Jesus Christ, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That goal, to take away sins, the resurrection of Christ Jesus did that for us. And that's why, and I love this verse, Second Corinthians 5:17, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new." That's a beautiful thing about our faith in Christ Jesus. You put your faith in Christ, it doesn't matter what you have did, it doesn't matter who you are, what kind of a lousy driver you are, or what kind of a lousy sinner you are, it doesn't matter. When you put your faith in Christ Jesus, the Bible says you're a new creation. Praise the Lord for that. The next thing that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection reveals to us is God's love. Look at verse five of chapter 10. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 5 through 7 there in your Bible is quoted from Psalms 40 verses 6 through 8 that David wrote. David wrote Psalm uh, 40, but prophetically this is a conversation that God the Son had with God the Father. It's prophetically, you, you, could just, you could just picture in your mind, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speaking to the Father. And what it does is it reveals the heart of the Son toward becoming a man and dying on, uh, for our sin on the cross. Now, what's interesting about this verses that we read, is that it's taken from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is known as as the Septuagint. So there's a little bit of a difference there. The Hebrew translation of Psalm 40, verse six, in your Bibles, if you have the New King James, it says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, my ears you have opened. But the Greek Septuagint, Says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Aha! We found a discrepancy in the Bible. There's an explanation for it. Actually, there's a few explanations. There are three that I know of. There's probably more um, that I that I think are valid explanations. The thing is, they all point to the same thing. They all they don't conflict with each other. The first explanation is quite simple and quite straightforward. When it says, my ears you have opened, or a body you have prepared for me, if you're reading the Septuagint, um, that word opened in the Hebrew is the word to dig. And in effect... This is one of the explanations. As it's as if God the Son is speaking to the Father and saying, Father, something like this. Father, you as the master craftsman have formed my body and dug out my ears. Kind of like he's being created. He's talking about his being created in the womb and, 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 and being formed as a baby and eventually a man. Um, I have been formed as a man to do your will. It's kind of, that could be one explanation. A second explanation is kind of based on a Messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 6, and I'll read it to you. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. This is a Messianic prophecy. So this is speaking about the Messiah. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. And if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, man, he fulfills that prophecy because you read in the Gospels, he would get up long before the disciples got up to pray. He would spend time hearing what the Lord, and he says, I don't do anything except what the Lord has told me. Verse five of, of Isaiah 50 verse, uh, verse five. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So in that explanation, based on that prophecy, it's as if the son is saying, Father, you have dug or you have opened my ears to hear your words, to do your will, and I am here to obey whatever you tell me. That's the second explanation. A third explanation comes out of Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, if you've ever read the book of Exodus, the chapter right before it, Exodus 20, is when the Jewish people, when the children of Israel are given the Ten Commandments. They're given the law of Moses. And then you get this chapter, and then all of a sudden you get to chapter 21, and it kind of seems out of place, because now all of a sudden he's talking about Hebrew slaves. It's like, huh? It's like non-secondary. You know, what, what's going on here? Well, what, it, what chapter 21 talks about is that if you were a Hebrew man and you, you, know, you couldn't pay off your debt, you, you owed someone some money and you, just, you couldn't pay it off, you could enslave yourself to a fellow Hebrew person. They'd be your master. You'd be, your, you'd be paying off your debt, basically working for free. Well, God had told the children of Israel that you could do that, however, after six years, in the seventh year, you had to be set free. You couldn't keep a Hebrew slave indefinitely. So the master would have to free this person after six years. Well, if that Hebrew slave entered into a slavery single, unmarried, then at the end of those six years, he, could, he, he would be set free single. You came in that way, you leave that way. Now, if he had entered his slavery with a wife already, he had already been married, maybe even had children, he would be set free with his wife and his children. They'd all be set free. Now, there's this third condition, and that's if he entered into slavery single, and then his master gave him a wife during those six years, and maybe they had children after that he would be set free at the end of those six years, but his wife and or children would still belong to the master. So in Exodus 21, verse 5, and I'll just read it to you, verses 5 and 6, it says, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost." and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever." So in that day and that age, if you saw a Hebrew man walking around with a pierced ear, you'd you'd know a little bit about him. First of all, you would know that he had been a slave, or he was a slave. You also would know that he had loved a wife, and that he had wanted to, that he loved his wife, he had been given a wife, I should say, and he loved his wife so much that he was willing to be pierced and willing to remain a slave in that condition because of his love for his wife. That's what that would tell you. Well, God the Son became a man and was given a bride. The Bible says you and I are the bride of Christ. And he loves his bride so much, he was willing to be pierced for her, for you and for I on the cross. Now, the only difference is Christ did not remain a slave, but he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he's returning for his bride. And then there's another picture of the Hebrew wedding. That's a beautiful picture that kind of comes into play next. Beautiful passages of scripture. Well, no matter which one of these explanations you choose, because, you know, I go to the, I look at these different commentaries, and, like, they all have different opinions. Like, three commentaries, four different opinions, you know, and then I've got to form my own. Um, it doesn't matter which one you choose. It all points to the same truth. What's that? That Jesus died on the cross willingly, joyfully, and because he loved you and I. That, that's All of those point to the same. He was willing to do whatever God the Father told him because he loved his bride. He loves you, and he loves me. Hebrews 12, 2. That's not it, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I'll let let that sink in for a couple seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. See, the bottom line is Jesus Christ loves you and joyfully, joyfully died for you and for me on the cross for our sin. And if you look at verse 10 of chapter 10 that we've been looking at, it says, by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What is he talking about, the will of the Father? What is the will of the Father? John 3, 16. For God, and you could put in the Father there, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, the Father loves you so much he sent his Son To die for you. Some people think God the Father is this, 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 you know, this angry, angry God in the Old Testament. Then we have Jesus in the New Testament. That's just love. And no, God the Father loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. And the Son loves you so much He willingly, obediently, and joyfully was crucified for you and for me. If you don't get anything out of that, man, get this: you're loved. If you ever feel unloved, man, go back to this. You are loved by God. Well, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection also is complete and effective. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. It's very interesting if you do a little look at the contrasts in that passage of Scripture. It talks about every priest... And if you know about the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, they had uh, a number of priests. They would kind of rotate through the priests. You know, They would serve uh, for, a, for a month at a time in, in the temple or in the tabernacle, of course, when this was written. But um, they would serve uh, in the temple. They would rotate through. Also, if you grew to, you know, you got to a certain age, you would kind of like retire, and the next generation of young men that were Levitical priests, they would come in and your children or whatever, they would end up being the next set of priests. So there's a number of rotating priests, I guess is what I'm getting at. So that every priest, and yet it says here, this man, this one man, our great high priest, one great high priest for all time, and it says, every priest stands. And I mentioned this last week. If you were to take a look at the, the articles of the furniture of the tabernacle or the temple, there's no benches. There's no break rooms. There's no coffee machines. There's no places where they can take a break. They were working. They were standing and working constantly, offering sacrifice after sacrifice, offering after offering. Their work was never done. They were always on the go in the temple. But this man, he offered one sacrifice for sins and sat down. The work's done. Nothing more to do. He sat down. The Levitical priests were just men, but this man sat down at the right hand of God. That speaks about authority, the authority that the Son has. And it says, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, Not only does that speak of authority, but it speaks of total conquest. You know, in Hebrews chapter 2, 14, I think I got ahead of myself here. Oh, no, there we are. Satan had the power of death. Hebrews 2, 14, we we read that. But Satan, threw all that he had at Christ Jesus at Calvary, all that he had, everything that he could, he just like, man, dumped it all on Christ as much as he could because he had the power of death. But Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's what we're celebrating this morning. He destroyed the power of the devil by destroying death, rising again. And now he ascended into heaven and he's waiting. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. That is referring to the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. It's also known as the millennial reign of Christ on earth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. This is an interesting chapter to read about the resurrection, a good chapter to read on Easter Sunday. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, Paul says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, if you read the prophecies about the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, you'll read that death still occurs during the millennium. But at the end of the millennium, the devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is where the Antichrist and the false prophet, they've already been there for a thousand years. They've already been there. So they're like waiting, you know. They're, they're... So the devil and his angels at the end of the millennium will be cast into the lake of fire. All those who've rejected Christ Jesus' sacrifice for sins, they didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. They will be cast into the into the lake of fire. All those who rejected the gift of salvation. And then it says death itself will be cast into the lake of fire at the conclusion of the millennium. You might wonder, well, if that's the case, if Jesus Christ conquered death, why do Christians still die like everybody else? Well, for the believer, Death is just a transition from this this old shell, this mortal body, to our immortal bodies, to our glorified bodies that we will receive. And it's to be in the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, face to face. You know, right now, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I believe that he rose again, I've, I've put my trust in Christ Jesus, I believe in him, but I've never physically seen him with my eyes. There's coming a day when you and I will be in heaven and we'll be face to face with our Savior. You won't need faith then because you'll see him as he is. What a glorious day, I'm looking forward to that. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has lost its power over you and I, the believer. And his one offering for sin, it'll never lose its power Or effectiveness to save any person, anywhere, anytime, no matter what. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter how many years after his his resurrection, his salvation, his sacrifice is still powerful and effective to save anyone. And it will never lose its effectiveness in the life of the believer. It'll never wear out. It'll never... Uh, It can never be improved upon. That one sacrifice, it's done for you and I. Now, verse 14 of chapter 10, if you have a King James Version, it reads slightly different than the New King James Version. Um, And I think the emphasis is just a little bit different, but I think both are true. The King James Version says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. You see, Christ died for the sins of the world, for the entire world. But his sacrifice, I mean, his sacrifice is capable of saving anyone, just like I just mentioned. Anyone can come to Christ and be saved. But it is only effective in those who are saved, in those who are sanctified, those who take advantage of it, in other words, those who are set apart to God. That's what sanctified means. So the King James Version, it's those, them that are sanctified. The New King James Version, which is the one I'm reading from, says, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There's a little slight difference there. Again, I believe that's true too. You do not receive a probational or progressive salvation. I hope you understand that. Your salvation is complete in Christ Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 10, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You're complete. If you gave your life to Christ one minute and then the next minute you had a coronary and you died right there, and you, you, you would go to heaven because you are perfect in the sight of God because Jesus Christ's blood covers all your sins. But there's also an ongoing work of sanctification, setting apart to God, taking place in the life of the believer. There's an ongoing sanctification. And that brings us to the next point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplishes inner transformation. Look at verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. This is a prophecy from the book of Jeremiah. We talked about it a week or so ago. You and I as believers, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit through the word of God our Bibles, the Bible says it's living and active. It's the, it's the living word of God for you and I, and the Holy Spirit witnesses to the truth of it through the word of God. And we also have the witness of the Holy Spirit inside of us and dwelling in us. The night that Jesus was going to be crucified, he was speaking to his disciples in John, uh, John chapter 16. And they were really, you know, he said he was going to the Father. They were really, they were all bummed out because here their rabbi, the the man that they had been following for three and a half years says he's leaving them. Jesus told them in John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. We've we've received the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the law is good. The Old Testament law, the the Ten Commandments, the commands of law, they're good. There's nothing bad in them. Uh, The Ten Commandments are fundamental to the Christian faith, I would say. However, the believer in Christ, I'm not focused on the letter of the law. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the letter of the law for me. And all I need to do is submit to the Holy Spirit inside of me. Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40. Someone came to Jesus and a teacher. What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It doesn't mean that you can't forget about all the other commandments. They're not important. You can ignore them. But listen, if I am loving God first and then loving my neighbor, man, I'm not going to commit adultery. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to do all those things. And you see, it's the Holy Spirit working in you and I as a believer. And that's what Jesus, that's what God was prophesying through Jeremiah to the children of Israel. It's the Holy Spirit that accomplishes that in my life. (laughs) I'm behind. (laughs) Philippians 2, verse 13. That's one area I can improve on. (laughs) Philippians 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Did you catch that? God gives you the desire to do what pleases him. Not only does he give you the desire, but he also gives you the ability to do his good pleasure. That comes through submitting to the Holy Spirit in your heart. As he's guiding you, as he's speaking to you, you're you're listening to him and you're obeying him. He's going to guide you in your life. And that inner transformation, that comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit in in you and me. What's the last thing? It's not the last thing, but the last thing we're going to talk about this morning that the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ does is this it removes the stain of sin. Look at verse 17. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is no remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Our forgiveness is so complete. That Christ Jesus, that God doesn't simply forget our sins, he chooses not to remember them. That's a difference. He purposely, actively chooses not to remember your and my sins. And that kind of leads to another thing. Well, if God chooses to not remember my sins, why do I keep dwelling on them? Why do I keep thinking about all the terrible things I've done? Remember, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. If you've put your trust in Him, if God chose uh, chooses to forgive, uh, forget our sins. Let you and I stop wallowing in our misery and start looking up. I like, I'm a hit, I'm a behind myself again here. <laughs> Paul said this, Philippians 3.13, you're like, what are those slides? I don't understand, I don't either. (laughs) Philippians (laughs) 3.13, they made sense when I was doing them last night, okay? (laughs) Perfect sense. Um, Philippians 3.13, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I don't have to, I, the stain of sin is gone. That's what those hands were stained with sin. There we go, I get it now. <laughs> oh boy, anyways. <laughs> Listen, your and my sins are washed away. There's, no, there's not even a stain of them anymore. Our forgiveness is so complete, there is no longer an offering for sin. And what the writer is saying there, I've I've mentioned this as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, is that this letter was written to these Hebrew believers that were, they had been saved, they put their faith in Christ Jesus, but they were getting to the point, some of them were getting to the point where they were kind of like wanting to go back to Judaism. I mean, the temple was still standing. Sacrifices were still taking place. Maybe their family members were still going and participating. Uh, maybe they were being, you know, persecuted for their faith in Jerusalem because, you know, hey, you, you know, you're not Jewish anymore. What, what have you done, you know? And so they were facing, it was tough, and Christ hadn't returned yet. And so they're like, man, I don't know, maybe we should just go back to the Ju- Go back to what we know, man. It's just comforting, you know, it's easy. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard standing for Christ, you know. Th- that might have been their attitude. Well, the writer is saying here, after you've been forgiven by Christ Jesus, there's no longer an offering for sin. That's why the warning is in verse 29, which we're not going to look at tonight for the Hebrews. It basically means don't go back to the Levitical sacrifices and trample the Son of God underfoot. Because that sacrifice is done. If you're you're trying to do something, if you're trying to improve on what Christ Jesus did, it's offensive to God. It's offensive to him. It's kind of a weird way to end our resurrection Sunday morning. (laughs) Uh, Anyways. Looking back at all those things that Christ Jesus did for us, the guilt of sin is gone. Our forgiveness is so complete and so effective. It can, it's done for you and I. We are given inner transformation through the Holy Spirit. What a blessing that is for you and I. And then the last one, which I already forgot. (laughs) The stain of sin is gone. All right. Hey, why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer.